Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments and of course it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and, and projects myself. I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. They failed, but why does politics so often fail? With me is Ben Ansell, the author of a new book on just that subject and the Professor of Comparative Democratic Institutions at Nuffield College, Oxford. Welcome to The Bunker, Ben. Thank you, Ros. It's lovely to be here. When I was thinking about this conversation, it occurred to me that one of the most depressing things about British politics at the moment is the determination to enact law that is not just pointless, but sometimes actively harmful. I mean, the Brexit, the B word is the obvious example for me, but the voter ID law also comes to mind, something that wasn't needed and ends up disenfranchising people and actually making them distrust the state more. And it's felt as though nothing can stop these things happening. But what in normal times can stop them happening? Well, that's a great and big and difficult question to start with. But I suppose if you write a book called Why Politics Fails, you have to expect lots of different types of failures to lead to those types of questions. Let me start by distinguishing between two ways that politics can fail. So it can fail because we all disagree and we can't make our minds up. And it can fail because politicians have a particularly sharp version of the incentives that, that we all face to, to do what's best for us because they have electoral cycles that are very, very short and they don't always internalise the effects of that. So the voter ID example is a, is a great one because it's not really clear what major legal problem uh, it exists to solve, not least because very, very few people have been found to have voted illegally in this country. But it feels like something that can both excite uh, the incumbent party's supporters in the media, and that might potentially give them an edge in the next election. And so the long-run effects of that, well, those are after the next election. But I will note, in politics, people sometimes get a little bit ahead of themselves and end up with unintended consequences, because it seems just as likely to me that the kinds of people who don't have voter ID and won't have it when they come to the polls are exactly that group of people who voted for the Conservative Party in 2019. So they might want to be careful what they wish for. And then the backlash comes and then the anger, I suppose, and the feeling that you've been deceived. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that we've been going through what seems like a never-ending spiral in British politics of the press and politicians promising voters responses to, to things going wrong, implementing those responses, discovering that the public don't like them after all, reversing them either before they happen or after they happen, and then we somehow end up starting the same process all over again. That's not the type of policy that really will help British democracy over the long run. So the job of a politician, I mean, the ideal politician, I'm trying to think of if there's an example, you know, in, in, in political literature of the ideal politician. The ideal politician's job then is in, in a way to step back and say, I can see this is what you want. Um, this is why it might not be a good idea to do this right now. But we don't seem to be very good at doing that, do we? No, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell because you're telling people, listen, you, you have these things that you want, but hold on. But each of us individually often does find 
our own self-interest doesn't line up with the bigger picture social things that we claim that we want, right? So, I mean, the most obvious example is everybody wants the NHS to be funded well, and everybody's also complaining about Britain's highest uh, level of taxes since the end of the Second World War. The problem is if we aggregate all of that up, we end up with a situation we're in right now with a threadbare NHS. It's everybody unhappy with it and mad about being taxed as well. It's a tension, isn't it? Because in political circles, you often say, oh, you know, there's an obsession with personalities. We see all politics through the lens of personality, and that's not healthy. And normally I would agree with that. But from what you say, it's also important that you can have sufficient trust in a leader to be able to accept things that you don't want to hear from them. Ultimately, we as humans, we all probably deep down know that we can't always be trusted. And that each of us, in the absence of some kinds of constraints, these very constraints that we rebel against, is likely to either misrepresent what we want or to misbehave in some way. And it is a rare politician who can find a way to make us want to accept those constraints and chains. But, you know, the classic example that people always come back to is John F. Kennedy's think not about what your nation can do for you, but what you can do for your nation. And John F. Kennedy was a great salesman. But Barack Obama was a great salesman, and he struggled to get through a pretty moderate milk-a-toast healthcare bill in 2010. So even someone with the rhetorical skills of Barack Obama is still going to stumble in lots of these cases. It's a bit of a commonplace, too, to say that more democracy in some way is always the answer. Is that always the answer? So the complexity is that one thing that political scientists really do know is that if you have a complicated series of options, there's no really coherent way, if people have different opinions, to add them all together. So this is called the impossibility problem. So democracy can solve some things, right? We can find out if there's a majority for a binary choice. What we can't necessarily do is guarantee that any way of choosing how to vote among things can get us a perfect answer. And what's more, democracy in some places can hurt in others. So We have moved to an American-style primary model for electing leaders in this country in our political parties. It used to be that the MPs would get together in the so-called smoke-filled rooms and select the new leader. Obviously, that's anti-democratic, right? And I can understand why people thought it was an elite cabal, because it was literally a cabal of elites. But we have now had this much more open election process, and for Labour, it initially produced Jeremy Corbyn, and for the Conservatives, it produced Boris Johnson. And that meant that Um, without wishing to cast aspersions, the more extreme elements of each political party got the leader that they wanted, leaving people in the middle feeling unrepresented themselves. And so democracy in one place ended up producing an outcome that the public as a whole wasn't really that happy with, uh, and ultimately ended up producing the farcical situation of Liz Truss lasting just a few weeks as prime minister through the same mechanism. And as you were talking about Uh, the problem of not being able to persuade people of the importance of some policies. I was thinking of Emmanuel Macron, because this seems particularly pertinent right now. Here is a president, he has a personal mandate for putting through pension reform and raising the pension age. And now we are seeing a vicious backlash against this idea Here is someone who is of extremely powerful personality and you'd think could have pushed through something this unpopular. What did he get wrong, do you think? Well, the fundamental line that goes through my book is that we all disagree all the time. 
So even if we generally agree that we'd all like a functional welfare state, we still have differences and different winners and losers and differences in how we'd like to get there. So Macron had a, had a personal mandate, um, but that didn't take away the existing divisions in society. And the way I think about this in the book is through the lens of the democracy trap, where they argue there isn't really such a thing as, as the will of the people. Instead, we end up veering either between this chaotic outcome that we got with Brexit when we couldn't decide what to do, or polarisation. And that's exactly the situation that Macron is in. There's no point in Macron claiming that because he has a mandate, that is the true will of the people and therefore people won't disagree. He has the power to do something. That's, the, I suppose, the degree to which there is a will of the people. What he can't do is take away those differences or squeeze them out, uh, which is very difficult for a technocrat, perhaps, to, to acknowledge. But the politics is still there, and it, now it's just on the street instead of the ballot box. And your book focuses a lot on the contradictions in our thinking that stop us getting things done and self-interest versus the knowledge long-term good. How can we overcome, though, self-interest? And this is the thing that is really um, eating away at my thinking at the moment, I suppose, when the state keeps retreating and leaving us on our own. I mean, it, it certainly makes it harder to develop um, what in the book I call solidaristic policies. The NHS is, is the best example of that. And um, I talk in the book about a solidarity trap, which is bluntly, we only uh, want to pay for solidarity when we need it for ourselves, right? If everybody is is on their own, if everybody's insuring themselves privately, then yes, it becomes hard to create support for social insurance, not least in you know, imagine a world where everybody's buying private health care or private education, then they simply don't want to be taxed for the public health or education. But e even beyond that, when I'm well today, then I'm not worried about sick me tomorrow because sick me isn't around. And getting people to acknowledge that future me and current me are the same person and the latter's going to have to look after the former is really difficult. And this is going to be a particular problem when it comes to, well, it is a particular problem, when it comes to doing anything about the environment, isn't it? Absolutely. The environment is, is the problem from hell uh, in the sense that our long-run prosperity depends on us being willing to accept short-term costs and not flying to Paris or not driving around in our large cars. And I am sure I am as guilty of that as uh, the people I um, describe in the book and as probably most of the listeners are. It's really hard to separate those things out. Think about the situation that we've been in with paying for heating over the winter. Right? On the one hand, we have all the COP25, COP26 and so on, all of the commitments we're making towards net zero. On the other hand, we're having to massively cross-subsidize coal and oil because when push came to shove, we were more worried for understandable reasons about people freezing over the winter than we were about the effects of those further emissions on the temperature in 20 or 30 years' time. Is there any way that politicians can overcome that short-termism? Is there any country in the world which where a government has, is convincing its people that they need to act now. So the first thing I would say is don't get sucked into the entreaties of places like Singapore, where they will tell you about how, because they don't have to face elections, they can plan for the long run. I mean, that might well be true, but that doesn't mean, A, that they will plan for the long run because there's no one to stop them, or B, that they know what the public really want if they're not voting. So, you know, for a long time, places like Singapore and China have been attractive to people about this long-term planning, but there are costs that I don't think any of us in the UK would really be willing to bear for long in terms of our freedoms. So that means we have to think about democracies. I think it is probably the case that our electoral system uh, has some unfortunate consequences because it empowers parties so much. 
but it also doesn't empower those parties for anything longer than the electoral term. And so I think it's fair to say we have had some slash and burn politics. And that means it's hard to plan for the long run and do it stably. If you look at our friends in Europe, those countries with proportional representation systems do have this one advantage, which is that lots of parties are always in power. And that sounds really anti-democratic, but it also means there's some continuity. And I think that's a trade-off, right? A key message of the book is there are always trade-offs. We can't have everything. We might find aspects of PR anti-democratic or at least not accountable enough. On the other hand, there's lots of research in the social sciences that shows that those countries are able to do better planning for the long run than we are. So is the answer to join a political party something that I personally resist because my job, I find it kind of muddies my thinking if mm-hmm. I'm too, if I feel too attached to a particular party. But do we just have to swallow our doubts and get on board? Political parties play a really important and undervalued role in our society. Right? So the way I've been describing parties is as chaos cages, right? So we we need a way to prevent ourselves from just spiraling around between different options. Parties enforce that kind of discipline on politicians. That can be a good thing. It wasn't great when Boris Johnson threw lots of people out of the Conservative Party. But having a Conservative Party that was that had a clear message and accountability did win him an election in 2019 and does have some merit. Let me add to that by saying one of the saddest political events over the last 20 years in the UK, but also in Europe, is not just a decline of party membership. It's a decline of what social scientists call intermediating institutions. That's the kind of lengthy Latinate phrase that we love, like trade unions on the one hand and churches on the other hand. And they played a really important role in giving a sense to citizens what policies might do for them and how voting for particular parties might help them in achieving that. And the decline both of the unions and of the church has removed those and has left us a bit more atomized, going back to your earlier point about being atomized in lots of ways. So it's just us and the party mediated by Twitter, which is not so great. Well, I wanted to get to Francis Fukuyama and end of history about all this. We are entering an era where we are seeing what can happen to a mature democracy when things start to go wrong. Mm-hmm. What are we learning about that and how people react who have had you know, decades, perhaps, of uh, full emancipation and a democracy? What happens when it all starts to fall apart? In this country, I'm not worried about us de-democratizing in any way. I mean, clearly clearly prorogating parliament and things like that was sort of anti-democratic. But I don't think most scholars would think of Britain as democratically backsliding. The United States is is a bit more of a concern. Um, but again, the insurrection was fortunately not successful. I think the challenge that democratic politicians have not yet dealt with effectively is how to speak to the understandable bases of support for populist politicians, right? This is not coming from nowhere. People may be being misled to some degree, but these populist politicians picked up on something that clearly wasn't being addressed. My book is is all about how we do all fundamentally disagree on things, and politics is about resolving that. And of course, the populist line is different. It's that, look, we all agree on something, but there's an elite stopping us from getting there, uh, which I think is fundamentally false, but is clearly really attractive. Populism emerged successfully in the UK because the previous axis on which our politics pivoted between sort of Thatcher through Blair, 
stopped representing a bunch of people. They felt left out. And the genius of people like Boris Johnson was to turn that axis so that those people felt represented and a bunch of people like me in university towns suddenly felt left out. It is not beyond the wit of man to reframe the axis of debate in the United Kingdom and elsewhere away from that kind of populist cosmopolitan dimension. And, you know, frankly, the Sunak-Starmer pairing looks like it's a reframing away from that so that in if they're still there in a year or two's time, we may be having different debates than we were over the last few years. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you whether you feel things are beginning to improve. I mean, as you say, probably Britain isn't at risk of an imminent, you know, populist, uh, populist takeover. But nonetheless, a lot of populist policies have become embedded in government policy. And a lot of things which were unthinkable a decade ago, like, for example, leaving the EU or mm -hmm. perhaps deporting migrants to Rwanda, are now mainstream and accepted political policy. So can we step back or is this a permanent shift? Is this a permanent shift in the Overton window, which isn't going to return to the more Blairite, shall we say, mm -hmm. days? So I suppose one way of thinking about this is to say, OK, in the 1990s, what were the axes of debate that have gone away now? So one was about homosexual rights, which where clearly we've made enormous progress. Mm. Um, I think more broadly, the UK has come a, a huge way in terms of representation of ethnic minorities and women. And one only needs look at, to look at the shape of parliament and its leadership to see that. So there's been a lot of progress, but I think the challenge that progressives always have is to think in a kind of Fukuyamian way, although I'm not sure Fukuyama would necessarily approve of all this social liberalism, that, okay, once all that's achieved, we're done, but, it, but we're not. New dimensions of conflict always emerge. I mean, again, this is the theme of the book. We do all disagree on things. In a way, the the policy involving Rwanda is, yes, beyond the imagination of 15, 20 years ago. On another hand, I think it's extraordinarily unlikely that anyone ever, I, I mean, I'll have to eat my own hat um, when, we, when this happens. But it's just a policy that the government is really struggling to even implement. So it's become a end of the spectrum on some new social authoritarian dimension of politics. But if you think about what it's replaced from the 1990s, it's not obvious to me, given that I think it's unlikely to happen, that this is as bad as some of the limitations that were placed on people's rights even back in the 1990s and certainly earlier. When you think about the tensions in British society today, um, intergenerational tensions are one that come up comes up quite often. What worries you most? Yeah, so that's the biggest, actually. And I, I think that's the reason underpinning why things like the Rwanda policy uh, and indeed leaving the EU have become a, a core part of British political debate is we have a politics that's generational now. Frankly, they are mostly educational divides. And so when people talk about does a culture war exist or not in the United Kingdom? I mean, these are always hard to define, but I suppose to the degree that university graduates think differently from non-graduates and the fact that there was a mass expansion of higher education in the early to mid-1990s, uh, that has structured all of our politics, meaning that older generations just think differently about the world than younger generations. I don't really see how that changes, right? Because the education is what people have. Except Rise up or time. down in importance. But yeah, yeah, it changes because there's generational turnover, which is the nice political science way of saying that people die or enter you know, the electorate when they're younger. But these, I mean, they go beyond almost, it's, it's, it, it's now extended to handing down wealth. That's right to younger generations, but in a, in a way that depends basically on whether you own property or not. Um, and big transfers of wealth, which are 
not really mediated by by the state except via a bit of inheritance tax. Mm -hmm. Do those worry you too? I've been doing a lot of research on this particular topic because that's what I had a large grant over the last five years from the European Research Council to run. So I've asked the British public a lot about what they think about wealth taxation. And I think there is a paradox uh, for social scientists in Britain, which is that it's harder than ever for younger generations to own houses. Wealth inequality is higher today than it was in the 70s and 80s. It hasn't actually risen an enormous amount over the last 20 years, but it's still historically high compared to that period of time. And there is zero demand for wealth taxation from the general public. Mm. Uh, And, you know, that's something I talk a lot about in the book. There's a lot about how can we have this desire for greater equality on the one hand, but an unwillingness to look at wealth taxation, even as it was in the American case I talk about in the book, even on people with, you know, incomes of $10 million or more, it was hard to get a wealth tax. And I think it's because people have very strong views about fair treatment with their wealth and their, their equal rights to dispose of that wealth to their children as they want to. So then we have this balance between equal outcomes on the one hand and equal rights on the other hand, where the rights seem to keep winning. People, I guess, like like capitalism more than redistribution when it comes to passing things on to their kids. Right? It's sentimental, but it's also because people think about double taxation or they think of it as death taxation. And so I think it's a huge, huge challenge for our current political system to figure out how do we deal with a situation where where it's incredibly hard to own a house, but there's very, very little demand to redistribute housing in any way? We might, again, be stuck until there's generational turnover, to use that euphemism again. But that does mean that the children of today's boomer homeowners are going to be the beneficiaries of the greatest intergenerational transfer of wealth uh, that we've seen. Uh, and that's going to have real implications for people's opportunities in the UK. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ros. And Why Politics Fails is published by Viking. If you enjoyed this episode, you can keep the bunker going by joining our Patreon. Just search for Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, audio production by me, Robin Lieber, and the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.